Hello and welcome to another episode of the Capitol Record. I am your host, David Bonson, and I am so excited to finish the month of January with another wonderful, enticing, exciting, and important uh, edition. We have uh, not only an important topic, but uh, a guest who I think uh, has a lot to say. It's going to be um, very interesting, worthwhile. We've had him on the podcast before, and that is uh, Jeremy Tedesco of Alliance Defending Freedom, who is driving their viewpoint diversity initiative. And it's been a, a little less than a year, but it was some point probably in, in the first part of 2023 that we last had Jeremy on. Um, the reason I think this topic is so important to Capitol Record is not merely the tactical side of what Jeremy and his cohorts are a part of, uh, an operation that I am very much on board with and in agreement with and participating in in a lot of ways, really very excited about. But see, I think this whole thing is at the heart of, of what we believe about the free and virtuous society and, and about my defense of capital markets is that I want this podcast to stand for a defense of liberty and I want to stand for promotion of virtue. And I particularly believe that in the context of free enterprise, in the corporate sector, in Wall Street, in small business, you know, throughout the sort of economic activity of our land. And yet when companies misbehave, um, there is a camp that would say we need the, the state to go do this. We want another actor to go shut it down. And, and I think that there is also a sense in which we really want companies that misbehave to be called out by their owners. And I want companies that misbehave to have to uh, account for uh, their shareholders, account to a board, uh, be, be held accountable in the court of public opinion, um, where there are legal matters, ha have legal avenues. But I think that my point is a lot of people have given up on the corporate sector. And as our friend Jerry Boyer has said, we continue to lose fights that we don't show up for. Well, Jeremy's showing up for those fights. And that's and that's why I want you to hear from him today, because I think we're in a battle for the heart and soul of what the free and virtuous society is about. But I don't think that it is a matter of trying to wave a wand to get everybody on board. I think it's a matter of us presenting a holistic defense of what we believe, a holistic presentation of, of what this uh, society ought to look like. And when companies misbehave, they need to be held accountable. So we want to get into the nuances of that. And that's why I have Jeremy on. So Jeremy, with that long intro, um, welcome back to Capital Record, my friend. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me on, David. Um, I can't say Happy New Year anymore. We're a little too deep into January and I've made a, a commitment to to, to just move us on into 2024, but I do hope you and yours had a wonderful holiday season and that your 2024 is off to a good start. Maybe maybe we can start off by you sort of updating listeners on what you're up to with this uh, Viewpoint Diversity Initiative before we delve into some of the weeds about J.P. Morgan and some other things like that. Sure. No, I appreciate it. You, you know, and the, the big picture is we want to stop corporations from being captured by ESG and DEI and so much of the um, progressive agenda for, for businesses. 
And you know, our perspective is that ESG and those things are really just the progressive political agenda package for corporate America and, and, and made to look good. The problem is when corporations adopt that agenda, it has enormous consequences for our society, for our civil liberties, um, for our freedom. One of my friends likes to say that ESG, the E in ESG is about uh, how we live and the S is about what we believe. And I, I think that's right. The, 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 the progressive activists are trying to aim corporations at essential ways of, of life and, and values and belief systems. And so we have to combat that. And as you were saying in your intro, um, it's not that the only thing we can do is resort to the government. Um, we have all these shareholders uh, who hold conservative values, who hold religious values, who have largely been silent. Um, and the left, of course, has really driven a lot of the ESG agenda and had a lot of successes in getting corporations to adopt that agenda through shareholder activism. And by just pushing resolutions and having meetings with board members and in the C-suite and in, in we, it was uncontested space. So that has changed a lot as your friend, Jerry Boyer and mine too, um, has, has spoken to on this program. And Jerry has been involved in a lot of those efforts as well. Um, and so, you know, now there are conservative religious shareholders that are really starting to push back and hold these corporations accountable. And it's not an anti-ESG movement, right? It's a movement for freedom. It's a movement for liberty. It's a movement that's trying to hold corporations accountable for values that are set at the very core foundation of our country. And for us, those things we're trying to advocate through our index is free speech and religious freedom. We want these corporations to respect those values and to a very bare minimum not undermine them and hopefully give back to a society and build up a freedom of religion and speech that's available to everyone. Um, do you feel that the improvement, that the, that the moving of the needle over the last couple of years since you've gotten started is a byproduct of pressure and, and some companies getting a little bit arm, arm, you know, arm twisted? Or, or do you think there's some companies that are, are all happy to, to come along, that they're in agreement that um, what you're suggesting is a, a better vision for, for how these things ought to work? I think there are, I think it's a lot of all of that. I think there are some companies that are very recalcitrant and are only going to respond to a stick. And that might be like Bud Light's experience or Target's experience um, with, you know, dabbling their toe into gender identity ideology and, and then having massive, you know, downturns in their earnings as a result of the public backlash. And, um, you know, and I think those companies largely are responding to pressure um, and negative press coverage and in, 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 in bad social media posts. <laughs> you know, I think uh, there are, though, when we have experienced this directly and the shareholders that we are working with who are filing resolutions, uh, supporting our index work and having conversations with the C-suite members at some of these institutions, there are definitely very large financial institutions, especially, who are who are aligned with us and agree with the values that we are promoting through the index. And those values, again, are essentially viewpoint neutrality in your services. Stay out of these political questions. They alienate your shareholders, your customers, um, your, your workforce, um, and do positive things that build up a culture um, for free speech and religious freedom. Um, these are things that everybody can agree with. And, and we're certainly not asking the companies um, to do what the what what ESG activists 
typically do, which is ask them to cancel, censor, deplatform people they disagree with, or adopt you know I- ideas and ideologies um, that are in line with their agenda. That's that's not what we're asking these corporations to do. We're actually asking them to depoliticize their services, their practices, their policies, and make commitments, positive commitments that they're not going to deprive people of services because of their religious and political beliefs, that they're going to respect their workforce's diverse viewpoints. Um, so I think when businesses really just look a little bit under you know, the hood of the index, they say, I like what I see. And we have had, to your point, some, some businesses say, we're actually aligned with this and want to work with you to make improvements. Um, is there a tension when you talk about viewpoint neutrality, uh, depoliticization, asking the companies to kind of stay out of culture war or politically toxic issues and supporting free speech. These are public companies. These are large companies. But on a small business level, w- would you feel the same way? I think to the story of the, the baker with the cake and the Supreme Court stuff there, you know, there's still there's a sense in which we'd support a religious liberty to, to, to um, not get involved in a, in a situation or to get involved in one around someone's own uh, conscience. So I guess I'm wondering how you think, because I want to dive a little deeper than a lot of times this conversation goes. And that, by the way, I'll put my cards on the table. Is one of my biggest frustrations with the whole topic is, is oftentimes it's hard to get into the nuance, to get into the, the tricky tensions that exist in the law, um, because it's made for sound bites, you know, uh, the anti-woke stuff, uh, it, it, the Bud Light thing was perfect because it could almost be entirely administered with Twitter and memes, just sort of making fun of the silliness, and that kind of worked. But you know what you're involved in is much more uh, technical, legally. Um, the stuff that we've done together and work on it has a lot of nuance in terms of uh, ideology. And and so I want to dive deeper. I think that's what the listeners of this podcast are into. But I wonder just how you kind of think about those matters. Um, the where we want Johnson Johnson to not go get political, but we're okay with the baker not making the cake that violates his religious freedom. I, I know there are differences, but I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you might be able to talk through that a little for us. Yeah, sure. There's a, there's a, you know, obviously first a vast difference between Amazon and a small cake shop in Colorado. And, you know, I think the, the, the key difference is really, there's a couple. One is these are a lot of these small businesses we're talking about are privately owned entirely by either an individual or a group of people who are directing that business consistent with their values and their belief systems. They're not beholden to external shareholders who have rights as owners of the corporation, like these publicly traded companies. So one line of division is between publicly traded companies and then you know companies that are just privately held. Um, <clears throat> I think the our line that we really are, are aiming at and, and trying to focus on is corporations that have gatekeeper functions in our society to essential services and products. Tech and financial companies are the ones that we primarily focus on on the index because we are very concerned that uh, the ability, this this concentration of power in those sectors has a real ability to, to hamper free discourse, the exchange of ideas, the willingness of people to exercise their rights. Because when big banks and big tech companies are canceling your accounts or deplatforming you, um, it actually chills free speech and religious exercise. It impacts the public debate and dialogue because people aren't going to be as willing to express their ideas if they think they're going to lose their bank account as a consequence of doing so. Um, And so there are 
I think, key kind of concentration points in the business world, these, these tech and financial gatekeepers, as it were, where we're most concerned about companies engaging in viewpoint discrimination, taking sides, you know, using their reputation and their brand to drive these narrow political agendas. In the end, we agree that they have a right to do what they want to do and within the confines of law and, you know, uh, adopt ideological positions that are consistent with their values. And they're going to pay market consequences for those things. But we also think and the shareholders that we work with or, that, or, or benefit in the market on this. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know, we also, the shareholders we work with think that it's actually better for the business if they depoliticize, if they get out of those battles, if they treat their workforces with dignity and respect consistently consistent with an ideology, it's not based on DEI, but individual freedom and the idea that we are all created in the image of God. So, you know, there's, in the end, it's a it's a battle of ideas, right? Especially in the shareholder proxy space, there's plenty of shareholders of multifarious, you know, belief systems out there, um, and, and so um, you know, there's there's plenty of uh, debate and dialogue to be had uh, among shareholders and with the corporations uh, whose shares they hold on what's the best approach to doing business. The the viewpoint diversity index is really a stake on the ground on what we think, and a lot of the folks that we work with, is the best approach for these big businesses. Well, you know, one of the things that's so consistent in what you're saying is um, people will come and say, hey, why doesn't uh, XYZ public company have a right to have a particular view? And I'll say, I think they do have the right. And you you reaffirm that. Um, and, and you accept that they should pay market consequence or reap market rewards, but deal with whatever the market function of that may be. But I don't know why the immediate follow-up wouldn't be if XYZ company has a right to do a certain thing, ADF has a right to try to influence what they're doing, <laughs> right. try to exercise persuasion. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we're not talking about coercion. So they can freely, uh, a policy that we think is ill-advised, and we can freely try to talk them out of that policy or at least make an argument, engage in dialogue. Um, I don't, I, it still seems to me that we're on an even playing field of, the, the right amount of public discourse. Yeah. And I think the, the our problem, at least for people who share our values, is that we didn't, we didn't feel the team for a long time oh, yeah. in this conversation. You know, I will say, though, that there are a lot of, you know, aspects of, for instance, in the banking context, um, debanking is a real problem. And debanking is a product of, of, of vague terms of service, um, reputational risks, social risk policies that have really gotten out of whack. They're they're, they're no longer about uh, consumers, uh, you know, financial standing and viability. It's also about their beliefs and do they hold the right values and are they getting negative media treatment? You know, the, in, in, on top of that, you have government actors using their, their um, expansive regulatory th authority in the banking space to push banks um, and coerce banks essentially to push certain people out of the marketplace because of their values and beliefs or because they're in an industry that's disfavored. And so there's, you know, there's there's a lot of complexity to for instance the banking industry where, you know, we think there's legal lines that the banks can't cross as well. And as much as we are supporting shareholders who want to hold these co corporations accountable for debanking, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that we're not going to also try to hold these corporations accountable when they engage in religious discrimination. 
you know, or, you know, uh, other forms of, of, of exclusionary practices um, that are simply unfair under existing consumer protection law. So there's a lot to kind of cabin in their behavior, but there's also this gray zone, I think, where private enforcement of vague policies, government abuse of vague kind of reputational risk policies and otherwise are pretty harmful to the free market and to civil liberties. And so those, that's one thing we're very concerned about, again, why we're really focusing in on the financial sector through our index and some of the advocacy do we do with shareholders. And we did that advocacy with you as well last year with Chase. Yeah, now I wonder what you think, because of course I, I'm really privy to what to what we did. And, and I just think it was such an interesting result, an interesting process, and and I think very constructive. Um, and, and there's other things uh, that, that ADF might be doing that don't directly involve me, but in that particular case, and I want to get an update uh, for, for our listeners about JP Morgan. Um, one of the things that was important to me was that I was not going after, I, it just so happens that I don't own and never have owned the company Amazon. And there's a lot of things they do I don't like, but I'm not a shareholder, so I didn't feel that I had skin in the game. And even if I felt motivated in terms of public advocacy, um, it was just from a sort of doctrine of moral proximity, less animating to me, where with JP Morgan, one of the compelling arguments, and you alluded to this earlier, was that I literally was speaking as a shareholder. And I also was speaking as a fiduciary who manages, um, with a, give or take $100 million of JP Morgan stock on behalf of other people. And so it, to me, it was beyond just um, social advocacy, public advocacy, public interest. There, there was skin in the game. Do you feel that um, these initiatives ought to be attached to an economic interest or is the scope of public advocacy enough to warrant engagement? I, I think I guess we're all kind of wearing different hats here. Yeah, I think, you know, our coalition is very is very large. It involves, uh, you know, some people who are in it just for the public advocacy side of it and holding corporations accountable and trying to push them in a, you know, a different direction than where they're headed. I, I, I think we've had, we've seen a lot of success from um, talking to and engaging investors like yourself, like Inspire Investing, uh, a large Christian um, investment firm and others in the Christian institutional investment space um, we've had a lot of success with them approaching the companies because these are longtime shareholders in these companies who believe in the corporations. They, they invested in them for a reason. They think they're going to provide long-term value as an investor. And so they want a, pro they want a positive outcome. They want a positive, um, you know, uh, decisions made by that company that will, that will impact the long-term investment they have in that corporation. And I, I mean, from my perspective, the shareholder work has has really taken off because a lot of those kinds of people are the folks that are showing up, filing resolutions and having conversations with uh, leadership around the index and its principles that it's advocating. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's harder for the companies to just swat those people away. They're serious investors and they have to listen to them. In fact, they're legally required to meet with them, to have conversations. You know, once you get through the door, um, all the presuppositions and assumptions the companies make about who you are and you know what you believe <clears throat> based on a lot of 
probably negative things they might find in a Google search um, quickly fade away. And we're in real conversations around policies and practices and ways they can improve their behavior to increase their score in our index, but ultimately create a workplace um, where people want to come to work and that respects their customers and their shareholders. And so in terms of that matter with JP Morgan, you mentioned that they have uh, a legal responsibility to engage and shareholders have a legal right to initiate conversation. But one of the other rights shareholders have, and I admit that this is not something I'd ever participated in, um, apart from you know getting engaged with, with Jerry Boyer and the consultancy work his firm does now, now formally with, with my firm, as we've really uh, sought in this cultural moment to improve the shareholder engagement processes of what we're doing, running a $5 billion firm. But um, we did generate a proposal for consideration at a shareholder meeting, and they shut it down, said no, they wouldn't put it on the agenda. And that was outside of my real vanilla um, shareholder rights. And so we appealed, uh, worked together legally, and um, the SEC saw it our way. Um, you know, Jerry, I don't think I've asked you about this. I know I've talked to Jer Jerry, and I know I I I've mentioned it before. Um, my view continues to be that had they just accepted it, that the mileage we got out of that initiative, the constructive improvement, the conversation, the public pressure, the front page Wall Street Journal story, the eight Fox News stories, the um, op-ed that the Wall Street Journal published of mine about it, uh, a lot of the in in engagement you had and ADF had with state attorney generals, that a lot of that was just simply because of what J.P. Morgan did, not what we, we did, by turning down the initial proposal. And that the SEC ruling in our side served as a sort of a spotlight of media attention. Am I overthinking that, or do you believe that was part of the issue, that in a sort of ironic sense, they caused a lot of the attention on what they did by a second bad act? I think you're right. I think it was a big catalyst for what we saw um, in the early part of 2023 in the run-up to J.P. Morgan Chase's meeting with 19 state attorney, attorneys general engaging their state treasurers to, like you said, the Wall Street Journal front page article. And yeah, I think these corporations have become, uh, I think they don't maybe think this any longer. I <laughs> think things are changing. But I think for a long time, they thought if we go to the SEC and try to block these kinds of resolutions, we're likely going to have success, especially where the resolution is what, what they would label, not what we would label, anti-ESG or somehow, you know, e ESG skeptic. Um, and, and so, and so what's going on, I think, in part is Chase was relying, at least last year, on the fact that they probably could score an easy win at the SEC and just make this go away. And that didn't happen, in part because we responded with uh, their no action request to, to their no action request with a 25 page memo that also laid out the fact that if they denied it, they probably were going to be facing a First Amendment lawsuit. Because when the SEC engages in uh, you know, deciding what resolutions can peer, appear on company proxy statements, they're a government actor, and if they're biased in making those decisions in a way that's biased for one viewpoint over another, they're violating the First Amendment. 
And so, uh, you know, we won that at Chase last year. We won it a- again, the same resolution we won um, when PayPal tried to uh, uh, get a no action uh, approval from the SEC on a similar resolution there. Um, and so I think that the trajectory might be changing a little bit. The calculus might be changing a little bit. So I, I'm not surprised they tried to block it last year, but I think you're exactly right. Um, if they hadn't done that and lost, I'm not sure we would have had the experience we had. But Grateful help, for help, it. help me out with why you weren't surprised that they tried to block it with these two facts. We knew, they knew, everyone knew that it wasn't going to pass as long as the proxy services aren't on board with us. And they knew that legally it was in good order. So what was the point of blocking it just because they didn't necessarily think we would go follow up legally and, and, and take the efforts we made like the 25 page memo. It, it, it just strikes me as, yeah, I would try to block it from getting on if I was worried about the outcome, but they couldn't have been worried about the outcome so why risk drawing more attention to it than otherwise? You know, it's sort of like the 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 kid who knows they've done something wrong and and mom and dad wouldn't notice it except for that the kid goes and does something else that causes mom and dad it's to see so it. True. I mean, it just, it's funny. It's so true. I just think that they had well, here's my thinking. My thinking is that Chase um probably thought they were gonna get a quick win and they part of the reason they think that is that our because we have not really entered the battlefield in this shareholder resolution proxy process, um, they don't anticipate that they're going to get much of a response. I mean, lots of times when conservative shareholders file shareholder resolutions, they don't have attorneys to back them up. They don't have a support system around them to help them navigate that process and actually respond to the arguments the companies make. And so, if it's a it was a very one-sided process, even at the SEC, where they would go hire Gibson Dunn or some other, you know, Vault 10 firm, and the conservative shareholder would write their own letter. So I just think that that power imbalance is shifting, and um, you know maybe that's going to change the way the companies engage at the SEC through the no action process. But I think time has we have to see what happens. There's no way to really know for sure if, if they've changed their their thinking in that process. You bring up Gibson Dunn, and of course, a, a lot of listeners may not know. I mean, it's uh, in, in your world and even in my world, the names of a lot of the major law firms, let's say there's about 10 law firms that are head and shoulder larger, more substantive, that pack such a significant punch in corporate America um, that, that may be kind of household names in our world that aren't with others. I did not know the depth of this bureaucracy in process, even as a professional money manager, until now I've been involved in um, you know, roughly 10 shareholder engagements, conversations, proposals, discussions. And I I come to I go to meetings, come back to my office, and there's certified mail waiting for me from one of our nation's top five law firms. You're not exaggerating. For a little um, filing or letter or, or request that we're not sit- getting some 800 number PR person from the marketing department calling back. You're getting correspondence from Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher and from, uh, you know, Sullivan Cromwell and the, and the major law firms in corporate America is part of what's going on in all this, that the law firms have an incentive 
to, to drive more impediment to healthy shareholder engagement. In other words, the more healthy engagement of conversation and perspective and pr attempted persuasion and dialogue that, that guys like us have with, with people like them, the more the, that that goes on that's good, constructive, and healthy, the less need there is for law firms sending letters and filing motions and, and, and engaging in process and, and whatnot. I just wonder how much you think you know, we talk about big business. How much is big legal in in the in the heart of some of these problems as well? I think you've probably identified uh, a major motivation for for the process to continue uh, the way it has in the past, and these SEC no action requests to continue to be filed. I, I don't know enough to to answer your question with a lot of uh, confidence, but yeah, I think what you're um, what you're saying has a lot of validity to it. Well, uh, let's put some cynicism of, of big legal aside and, and talk. I'm looking at some bullet points. Um, I, I'd love for you to share a little bit about, I'm definitely of the opinion that there's been some progress as a result of our efforts with JP Morgan. Um, but even beyond hearing the CEO and arguably you outside of Elon Musk and some of the big tech guys, one of the most famous CEOs in America and Jamie Dimon Outside of hearing him literally speak to our resolution and saying, I promise there is no debanking, getting these so sort of, um, you know, intent that it looks like if, if they were doing it before, they're not going to be doing it now kind of thing last year. But since then, it appears to me there's several bullet points worth of progress that have been made. And I wonder if you want to share some of those developments. Yeah, happy to. We were very happy this year when we went to score J.P. Morgan Chase to find that they have actually abandoned their social risk policy in their payment processing side. Uh, WePay is their payment processor. They had a social risk policy on the books for years that included terms like hate and intolerance. Um, essentially allowing them to bar service for anything they found hateful or intolerant. Of course, those are incredibly vague and subjective terms that you could justify viewpoint discrimination against anybody um, on the basis of those kinds of policies. And they had actually enforced those policies in the past a couple different times against a family policy council in Arkansas, um, against a an event in Missouri on behalf of a group called Defense of Liberty, um, they were going to have Donald Trump Jr. speak at the event. They canceled all the services to that event, citing this policy. It is off the books. As far as we can tell, there's no longer a social risk policy associated with Chase's payment processing, and they don't also have hate or intolerance or those kind of terms included either. That's a big win. And I, I you know, it's hard to think of anything intervening, you know, between us engaging in what we did last year with Chase and us finding this policy in October or November of this year missing. And so, you know, lots of times these corporations try to quietly change policies and, you know, move, move in a different direction. You know, I think we can pretty credibly claim this as a victory from our efforts. Um, the other thing that's going on is that we, we are continuing to converse with them around the viewpoint diversity survey. That's part of our index. We send every company we score, a survey asking them for information that helps us assess um, how their beha their behavior against our benchmarks. And I don't know whether Chase is going to take it or not, but they haven't said no. 
which is the first year they haven't said no. They've been saying all along, we're seriously considering it. We're still continuing to consider it. We've actually sent them login credentials for the survey. They, they have to affirmatively ask for those. So they've, they've taken that affirmative step. So hopefully we'll have uh, a response from JP Morgan Chase to the survey this year. If not, we just, we just keep the pressure on. We don't walk away. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people. Do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. Um, what is the uh, penetration like out, outside of J.P. Morgan? I'm going to come back to, um, in a second, some stuff you guys have going on with Apple as well. And that's obviously even more of a household name than J.P. Morgan. And so I don't want to forget to discuss Apple a bit. But just on that viewpoint diversity initiative itself, the survey, uh, that was something that last year, you know, I'm of the opinion when they tell us they didn't get it and then you know, we send it and then they say, oh, no, no one got it. Can you send it again? I, you know, cynically think there's game playing going on. It looks like at this point there's a more constructive uh, engagement with JP about the survey. But what are you seeing now in terms of participation from the survey um, at large? Are more companies participating? What Maybe update us some of those numbers. Yeah, it just so happens that today is the due date to finish the survey for this year. There's a grace period that will probably run through the end of February, so there's still time for Chase and others. Yeah. Um, but we've had 13 companies positively engage with our shareholders or with us around the survey uh, and the resolutions that we filed. Um, at this point, I think today we had confirmed four companies had either fully or partially filled out the survey. We have an additional six that have said they're seriously considering it. Um, which includes Chase, Truist, um, and a couple other large banks. So, you know, this is a game of incremental, um, you know, wins. And, you know, wins are defined in, in small, small increments. The fact that we have 13 companies engaging with us, um, asking for login credentials with the survey, assessing the survey in the index, this, you know, we, this is a progressive thing. We're going to do year over year. Uh, to try to get these companies ultimately to play ball and, and and take the survey. The survey is really the entry point to the conversation around, okay, here are our benchmarks. Here are the gaps according to our survey. Now, let us help you figure out how to, how to solve for those gaps. We've got model policies, practices, you know, other things we can recommend to them to try to get their score up and ultimately their, you know, approach to these issues improved across uh, their enterprise. What's the universe or the population look like of, of how many you're trying to get to do the survey? 75. And that's set on a criteria based on large cap, influence, connectivity, awareness? Is right. It, okay. Y yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, yes. I'm, and, and so, in other words, 
the resources and scale aren't there to be able to try to get 2,000 small cap public companies to do it. So you're trying to take nibbles at, at stuff that has more leverage in it by, by inviting that participation. Yeah, for sure. And again, back to what I said earlier, we, we're really concerned about concentrated power in the tech and financial spaces. So we, our companies that you see on our index are all household name companies for the most part yeah. in tech and finance. And so we really want to change the behavior of those companies because as they go, the rest of the industry will likely follow. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And you used the term earlier about them having a gatekeeper functionality, and then there's a size combined with the word power combined with a sort of function, a gatekeeper. There's a part of me who believes if we had unlimited resources, which of course we don't, and I know quite well how economics deals with scarcity. Um, I do think that even companies that may not seem to have the same degree of gatekeeping functionality like Google and, and Amazon, um, there, there's still a uh, DEI pain that is happening just at the company level of a vanilla billion dollar, $2 billion small cap public company. And ultimately, if, we, if, if we're able to change the thinking of HR departments, you know, across the board, but I think you're right, there probably would be more of a model if some of the larger companies were, were to move on this. And so you, you have to kind of respond. And it sounds like you responded to that reality of scarcity by by being real strategic as to who you went after here. Yeah, we'd like to scale it and be able to put 2,000 companies on there and put small cap companies that are probably behaving very well according to our standards. We'd really like to get to a point where the index has a, a really good actors that are getting you know upwards of 75% on our index and really bad actors are getting who are getting below 10%. The reality is right now, because we are having to focus on these large uh, actors in tech and finance, they are the most captured by ESG and DEI. And so they score pretty low in our index. I mean, it's just the reality. So we don't have uh, you know model citizen yet, uh, but we hope to find them. And I think we're going to um, in the financial sector, because there are banks that are clearly you know, indicating to us, we agree with the values that this index represents, you know, and we want to figure out how to score well on it and improve our standards internally to, to meet the standards and benchmarks we're setting. And I know the answer, but I just, I really do think it's worthwhile for you to repeat it for listeners. Um, those standards, those values, the things the index are going after, you're not asking companies to say that they're pro-life. You're not asking Correct. companies. You're not asking companies to say that they're anti-LGBT. You're not even Correct. asking them to say that they're anti-green energy. Correct. You're just asking them to advocate, in a sense, for um, viewpoint neutrality, uh, free speech, and and rule of law. That's right. That's right. We want them to respect free speech and religious freedom. We want them to respect the diversity of views that are represented in their workforces and within their customer base and within their shareholder base. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of, you know, great standards and, and model policies regarding you know, the treatment of workforce. And we have model policies for terms of service, um, you, you know, for, for customer facing products and services. Um, you know, so there's in, in none of them are, are, are pushing companies into some 
some par- particular point of view on a contentious social issue. Um, and that I think is something that's very, that distinguishes our, our project from most of what's aimed at corporations when it comes to these kind of indexes and even the shareholder engagement that happens from, from, from most folks, um, especially folks on the left and the progressive ESG activists. Well, I mentioned uh, that we wanted to come back to Apple, and and it does uh, seem that there's been some real interesting things going on. Apple being the largest uh, market capitalization company in the world, uh, having the most successful consumer product in the history of the world, uh, the largest amount of cash on their balance sheet of any company in the history of the world, the largest operating cash flows and earnings of any company in the world. So Apple's a pretty big player. Uh, I'd say they check your boxes about gatekeeper and and other things of that nature for so many reasons, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the uh, the kind of update in terms of dialogue and, and conversation with Apple? Yeah, well, I mean, the top line is we won an SEC battle just like we did for you last year, or I guess earlier this year um, at Chase uh, at Apple on behalf of shareholders who filed a resolution asking them for a report on the impact of especially their Apple app store policies on free speech and the free flow of information with specific concerns about how those policies have been enforced in ways that have uh, eliminated religious and Christian apps, uh, both in the States and overseas. And so there were several productive conversations I wasn't a part of actually Jerry Boyer um, your friend was part of those conversations with Apple in the lead up to the SEC win, um, but it, it, those 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 negotiations ultimately didn't resolve anything. So they tried to file uh, for a no action at the SEC to, to block the resolution. So they didn't have to be accountable to their shareholders at their at the annual meeting. And I think I should point out, you're right that it's very hard to get over the vote threshold we need on shareholder resolutions for reasons that are pretty complicated. But just having the conversation, as your experience with Chase taught us last year, is an incredibly impactful thing. So having the opportunity for the shareholder to go to this, go to the meeting, present their proposal to shareholders, and you know, kind of have their time to explain their rationale and the reason why it's concerning to them is, is powerful and can have impact. And so uh, where we're at right now is we've won at the SEC. Um, Apple has to put the resolution on their shareholder proxy, uh, their their proxy materials for their annual shareholder meeting. And at this point, the conversations with Apple continue. Um, There's plenty of things they could do, I think, that would result in the shareholder withdrawing the resolution. Um, Some good faith measures they could take, including taking our survey, um, but there's other things they could do as well. It probably will will result in um, a shareholder vote at their annual meeting. And, you know, I guess we'll have to watch what happens over the next few months to see exactly how it plays out. And I believe, as we saw with J.P. Morgan, that a uh, getting a vote, getting the chance to address the shareholders. Um, I had the opportunity last year to address shareholders at the J.P. Morgan meeting, um, also in a on uh, a different um, course of events, I addressed shareholders at the Exxon meeting, and I think there was a lot of constructive things that came from that. But um, even when the vote fails, as we've seen with J.P. Morgan, a lot of good things can come out of the process of getting that that proposal, a shareholder resolution on the ballot. Um, and yet, we'll lead this to kind of our final topic. The only reason why I have the 
pessimism or just the realism about the, the ability to see these things actually pass is because we know the math. Most mega cap companies, uh, well, I shouldn't say most, all mega cap companies are so institutionally owned that we know the composition of the voting public, if you will, and that the institutions, for reasons largely sensible in terms of operational scale, have outsourced their proxy voting to uh, one of two companies, either um, ISS or or uh, what we'll call GL, but it stands for Glass. Um, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank right now. Gla but, but Glass and then especially ISS being the two biggest. Tell me a little bit about um, the chokehold that they have on proxy advisory services and and what we can do about it. Yeah, they're really a duopoly. People say they have somewhere upwards of ninety percent control over the proxy advisory market. So their their vote recommendations ultimately control the votes of millions of shareholder votes every proxy season at all the big corporations and across all publicly traded companies. And so the problem is that they are ISS is owned by a German company, Glass Lewis by a Canadian company, both of whom are completely sold out for ESG. DEI and everything that comes under that. And their, their benchmark voting standards reflect that. They are very, very solicitous of you know, all ESG-based <laughs> shareholder proposals. I mean, some of them don't make the grade for ISS and Glass-Lewis from a voting perspective, but they do effectively bar the door to any kind of resolutions like what you filed last year at Chase. And, and what they do, which reveals their bias, is they, they especially at ISS, they categorize uh, resolutions that are ESG skeptical as anti-ESG. That's just, you know, they have this category, it's anti-ESG, it's all thrown in that bucket. And then it's basically, the fix is in. It's going to be a no vote for any any resolution gets categorized that way. And so it's very difficult. Let's ask that hypothetically to, to paint a picture. Um, obviously, their job here is theoretically non-ideological. <laughs> It's to advise <laughs> on what's right. best for shareholders, right? That's right. So if a company was hypothetically in the business of producing oil and someone put a shareholder resolution saying we should no longer produce oil for a company that produces oil, <laughs> regardless of ideology, I could be the greenest greenie that green ever let walk through the door, but it would be pretty bad for uh, shareholder value to ban oil, so I think for an oil company. Fair enough? Right. Fair enough. If somebody had a proposal that way, would ISS come and recommend a vote that was in favor of banning oil for an oil company, or would they look at that and say, hey, we're ESG friendly and we like you know, decarbonization, but this would be pretty bad for your shareholder value if you banned oil for an oil company? Um, how would they rule in something that would be in our little hypothetical here so black and white? I, I think it's pretty likely that they would vote a, recommend a yes vote um, so so long as um, you know the drivers of the ESG agenda were behind that share, shareholder resolution and providing the materials that ISS likes to see to justify. Um, a vote like that. I mean, they might say no, it's possible, but the, there was a, you know, and I don't know a lot about it, but there was an effort a couple years ago uh, at Exxon to replace a couple of the board members with, with, uh, with, with green activists who are completely opposed to 
the oil industry. Well, I'm, and, I'm actually, if you don't mind, I'll interrupt you because I was very involved with that. We're huge shareholders of Exxon. They weren't just activists, okay? They were extremists. And, right. and, and I guess green activists these days is probably more often than not synonymous with extremists, but not necessarily, but like it really was bad. These were extreme actors, and I'll let you finish how this goes because I know where you're going with this. Yeah, you know they they won the vote to be placed on the board at Exxon, largely because all these big asset managers and ISS and Glass or uh, these big uh, asset institutions like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard and ISS and Glass Lewis jumped on board and supported uh, the resolutions to try to get these board members put on. So. Uh, your your point is well taken, and that is the, the the real problem with ISS and Glass Lewis is that they're not complying with the fiduciary duty they owe to shareholders to act in their best interests and not in their political interests, the political interests of ISS and Glass Lewis. And there, just last year in December, uh, just a month ago, um, state AGs from I think it was twenty three states sent a letter to ISS and Glass Lewis, uh, and this was the second letter in in a year. Uh, to those firms saying, you are violating your fiduciary duty. You're violating federal law and state law. We're very concerned about your biased voting standards. And we're very concerned that you're boxing out a lot of conservative and religious shareholder proposals um, that are trying to you know, push companies in a, in, a, in a different direction than your pet ideology. And so you know, the conversations are ongoing with ISS. There's, there's, there's a lot of irons in the fire with ISS and Glass Lewis. Um, and I, th- you know, I hope that at some point, ultimately, they take their fiduciary res- responsibility seriously and get out of the political uh, aspects of what they've been doing. Um, at a bare minimum, they need to provide some kind of voting standards um, that comport with people who are free market, shareholder first, you know, fr- free speech, religious freedom um, proponents um, who can have voting standards they can opt into that reflect their values. Because what's going on to the point of, you know, we get a shareholder resolution on the proxy, the vote happens and we get under 3% every time. The practical problem with that is if you can't get over 5%, you can't bring the resolution back for another five years. Yeah. You can't really bring that issue or topic up for another five years. Well, the problem is the vote isn't does not accurately reflect the values and interests and beliefs of the shareholders that ISS is recommending the votes on behalf of. That's got to be solved one way or another. Um, it might have to be through an investigation and litigation from state attorneys general. And maybe ISS and Glass-Lewis finally listening and resolving some of this on their own. I guess we'll see. Well, and so that's the the ongoing issue. There's all this, um, I talked about desiring to have a deeper conversation, and that's what I think we've done here, is I want listeners to understand these proxy issues, the, the proxy services. Um, they're not as easily demonizable in terms of the character that like the Larry Fink BlackRock stuff has done. That became kind of a meme, a real easy target, um, and yet I think there's just significant low-hanging fruit with the problems that the proxy services represent, but it requires, as you point out, a much more complex legal approach. Um, I love the ongoing attempted persuasion conversation. You know, um, both Jerry and myself have had meaningful conversations with with people from 
ISS and, and I believe Jerry's case with Glass Lewis. And yet I got to say, um, to me, this is cut and dry. You know, part of me almost wants to, to uh, you know, uh, put a shareholder resolution um, saying that we recommend Exxon send all of their money and deplete all of their assets and liquidate everything and send a check to the Sierra Club and and see if uh, if ISS supports that shareholder <laughs> re- resolution, you know, which obviously would 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 uh, bankrupt the company to to zero. And I mean, but but some of the things they're supporting are only marginally less ridiculous than that. I mean, obviously they don't instantly Exxon getting two bum members on their board didn't bankrupt the company, but but it did marginally and symbolically put people that are against the very existence of Exxon in a position of leadership at Exxon. It's just unfathomably stupid that that could be allowed to happen with shareholders voting against their own best interests that way. Right. And yet there is no possible way that the people who are themselves economic stakeholders in the uh, profits and losses of Exxon would have ever voted that way. It would only be because of the the ISS Glass Lewis uh, intervention that something like that could happen. Now, those shareholders are responsible too. They don't have to vote uh, to proxy their votes to these services, but they have, and so it just it it raises the stakes for the education and the engagement, and in some cases even legal activity that's going to be required for us to win this game. Couldn't agree more. I think there's these choke points or these nexus points yeah. in this battle, and ISS and Glass-Lewis are one of them. They, they have a lot of power, and they wield that power in a way, that's, a, a way that's inconsistent with millions of shareholders' values. And I think once people understand that and that they are the one who's doing that, um, a lot of this is, is going to start to break free. The, a lot of millions of shareholders values and millions of shareholders basic economic interest. Absolutely. So Absolutely. There, therein lies that fiduciary um, factor. Well, Jeremy, I've, I've taken enough of your time that we've covered a lot of ground here. I really, I really believe it should be clear to listeners, the, the impact that you're having and what ADF is doing and the, and the resources here, um, what the bang for the buck looks like. I think it's very exciting. I'm looking forward to 2024. We have a lot of things in front of us, and we're going to keep fighting the good fight. I'm grateful to be co-laboring with you in this cause for a free and virtuous society. And thank you for joining us here on Capital Record. Thanks very much. And thank you, listeners, for checking in with us again here on National Review's Capital Record. I have really enjoyed the start to the year. I think we've had some just wonderful guests, wonderful conversations. And now we'll look forward to entering the month of February with a strong lineup and continuing our ongoing objective of defense capital markets towards a defense of a free and virtuous society. Thank you for listening to National Review's Capital Record.